The scripture reading this morning is John 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Thanks be to God. Last week the reading was 32 verses and this week it's two verses. It's just keeping us all on our toes. Let's join together in prayer. Oh God, we've come here once again to place our lives in front of your open word. No mortal words will do. So send your Holy Spirit that we might be transformed according to the word made flesh in whose name we pray, amen. Well, we are uh, in the middle of a series. We've been looking at the beliefs of Jesus, taking this sort of rather odd uh, look at the life of Jesus, asking ourselves, what, what did Jesus actually believe? If we discern uh, from the teachings and life of Jesus, uh, we know how he sort of instructs us how to believe, but what did he believe? And in light of that, as we wrestle with that, what did Jesus believe about life, the world, God, people, all these things, we then are invited to ask ourselves the question, do we believe as Jesus believed? Because we're not just meant to have beliefs about Jesus, everyone has some kind of a belief about Jesus, Uh, we're also meant to believe in Jesus, but our believing in Jesus is also meant to then uh, conform us to believe like Jesus. And so we're, we're wondering on this question, what did Jesus believe? And we looked at a few things uh, so far in the series. Uh, the first was that Jesus believed that at the center of reality was this thing called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And he says that it is at hand. It is right here. The reality of God is here. And that's what Jesus meant by the kingdom, that it is this force of love constantly flowing towards you and sustaining all living things, that 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 is reality. And next, that this kingdom, this love of God, um, God's presence available all around us at all times, coming toward us in love, is accessible. You don't, it's like a river. You don't have to join a club or or a, a religion or something like that to access God. John the Baptist called people to a river which is an accessible to anybody. Anybody can come to a river um, and come to experience the flow and the cleansing of God's love. This means that at the center of this kingdom is not a power-mongering king like Herod of Antipas, who Jesus was oftentimes comparing God to in his day, but more like a loving parent, compassionate and tender like a mother, strong and wise like a father, um, the perfect uh, parent. God is tender and strong and compassionate and wise. And so today I want to ask the question, well, all that's nice, but uh, what are we supposed to do? 
What, what, what is the work that God has for us? If we were to say God's here in this room and we ask God, well, okay, you're a loving parent. You're at the center of this reality, this kingdom. You're always accessible. It's all around us all the time. So now what do you want us to do? How would God answer that question? What would that work be? You have some work for us to do. And the interesting thing is that the disciples had this very question themselves. They asked Jesus, what are, what are the works that we're supposed to do? And of course, they just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and they're ready to get active, and, and uh, they're launching into this ministry of healing and all these things. And so they, uh, they turn to Jesus and they say, well, what's, what are the works that God requires of us? And Jesus flips it on his head, uh, on its head, um, and, uh, and he says, actually, he changes it from works to work. They ask, what are the works? And Jesus says, no, the work. One thing, the work of God is this, to trust in the one whom he sent, referring to himself, of course. They were probably expecting a list of things. You should do this, you should do this, you should do this, don't do this, go over here, do this. But no, the work of God is to trust. It's to believe in the one whom he sent. Not to do anything, just to trust. And Jesus lived every day as though he was in the presence of this God, this king, this uh, parent, this all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise father-mother figure who he could trust and who could guide him through life. There's a story in John chapter 9 that many of you are familiar with if you've been around the Bible and church for some time. It's about a man who was born blind. Uh, he didn't become this way. He was born this way. And, uh, and the man has a conversation with Jesus, and he simply, and Jesus asks him, well, what, what do you want? What are you looking for? And the man says, I want to see. And at this point, they're having some theological conversation. They're sort of using this man as theological fodder as they debate with each other to the reason as to why he was born blind in the first place. And some people say, well, was he, was he, uh, is it because of his sins that he was born this way? Well, it couldn't be because of his sins because he was born this way. So maybe it was because of his parents' sins. And all of this is going around and this poor blind man is just being used in this way for theological conversation. And Jesus does something very peculiar, very odd, and I'd like to invite you to put yourself in the man's shoes. The man doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't, and Jesus doesn't really know who this, well, that's debatable. But, um, so Jesus says, come on over here. And, uh, and he does something really odd. He grabs some dirt from the ground and he spits in his hand and he makes some mud with the saliva and he rubs it together and then he puts the mud over the man's eyelids. Now imagine being that man for a second. I don't know about you, but I think I, I would want to push Jesus away from me if he were putting mud on my face. Um, now, interestingly, then the, uh, this man has no name. He's simply known as the man who was born blind. It has consumed his identity. That's how everybody in the community knows him. He's been consigned to a life as a beggar. 
You can expect in this time and in this place that this man was picked on a lot, that he was uh, harassed from time to time. And he must be wondering, is Jesus, is this guy who's putting mud on my eyes, is he playing a cruel joke on me? Because what Jesus does is after he puts this mud on his eyes, he then tells him to go over and um, to the pool of Siloam and wash. Pool of Siloam is maybe about a mile away uh, from where they are, maybe a half a mile to a mile in the temple area, and tells him to go. And, and if I'm this man, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to stumble my way over to the pool of Siloam and I'm going to go into this pool and I'm going to wash this mud off my eyes and nothing's going to happen and everyone around the pool is going to laugh at me. But nonetheless, for some reason, this man chooses to do as Jesus said to do. In fact, he, he goes Maybe it was something about Jesus' voice. Blind people, some who I've known, uh, have, ha have an incredible sensitivity to other senses like hearing or touch or taste or smell. At any rate, he gets up and he goes to the pool and it simply says, and this is an image of the remains of this pool. I've been there and done a little meditation there. It's an interesting place nonetheless. It says that he went and he washed and he came back seen. That was it. He went, he washed, and he came back seen. And so this is an example of a guy who didn't know Jesus but chose to trust this man and to do as he says. You know, the word for trust comes from the same root word uh, to hear, and it means to obey, uh, to trust to hear and to obey are all related to each other. And so he trusted in what Jesus told him to do. It's the only thing he did. And uh, he put this li his life in this man's hands. And he came, and so this three-point um, uh, move that happens, he went, that is, he obeyed. He washed, that is, he was cleansed because he obeyed. And then he came back seeing which is a beautiful paradigm of the spiritual reality that we're all in. We all have need. We all have some blindness, psychological blindness, relational blindness, spiritual blindness. And if we are to trust in the teachings of Jesus, for me that means trusting in Jesus himself, then we hear what he has to say and we, we try our best to do it to the best of our ability and amazing things happen. We come back seeing a little bit more clearly. And so it is trust that enables us to see and ironically then, as we step out in trust, we can see a little bit more clearly, which then allows us to trust a little bit more. Oswald Chambers used to say, what I do every day is to trust God and take the next step. Trust God and take the next step. Trust only works in the dark. 
That's one of the fundamental truths about trust or faith. It only works in the dark. If you can see where you're going, you don't need to trust. But this man who was born blind exerted complete trust because he could not see where he was going. And in following that act of trust, he came back seeing. This is what we find in our lives too. Things in life become more clear as we choose to step out in trust. Um, why trust? One commentator I was reading this past week said that trust is the currency of the kingdom. You know what currency is, right? It's the, it's the coinage. So if I have a bunch of money and I want to buy a new car, I give the person the money and they give me the car. It's what makes the transfer happen. And Jesus is interested in inviting his followers to live in the kingdom, in, in the reality of God's presence coming toward us in love at all times. And how do we do that? Well, by trust. Trust is the currency of the kingdom. Well, why is trust the currency of the kingdom? Why isn't it intelligence or why isn't it, um, you know, muscle strength or something like that? Why is it trust? And the answer is because trust is available for, to everybody. Anybody can trust God doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. In fact, uh, children are often much better at trusting God than we adults are. But as we follow Jesus, we're meant to grow in our ability to trust in God. Trust is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. The, you stop exercising it, the weaker it gets. Anybody can trust God. doesn't matter how young or old you are. Um, some of the seniors that I know um, experience very real challenges and problems in their lives and even in their bodies uh, in ways that I do not yet. And, and yet they are some of the most trusting, faithful people that I know because they've been walking with Jesus for so many decades and they've learned how to hold things loosely and to, to laugh and to trust in God. That's what I want to be like when I grow up. Or if you're some, somewhere uh, somehow mentally impaired, you can still trust God. We were just look, watching the film, The Reason I Jump, and persons with severe nonverbal autism can still trust God. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to pass the Bible content exam. In fact, most Christians for the first 1,600 years of Christianity didn't even own a Bible. They couldn't even study the Bible on their own. They, but they still had deep faith. They believed and they trusted in a living God. There's a pastor I admire by the name of Tom Long who tells the story of a church in the South, a Presbyterian church, and, uh, and it was Confirmation Sunday. Confirmation class in Presbyterian churches is when uh, a, a group of young people in middle school or in high school uh, come together and they enter into a season where they learn about the essential tenets of the Christian faith, they make profession of faith, and they come to say yes to Jesus and to the church we just 
just commenced our season of confirmation a couple of weeks ago here in our church. Well, at the end of confirmation class at this particular church in the South, on the very last day, they line up um, all the confirmands on the uh, chancel before the congregation to profess their faith, just like ours will do when this season comes to a conclusion. And they profess their faith and they join their church and, and all of this before the congregation, but they also show off a little bit of their memory work. And in that church, they, uh, they, can, they might either um, recite part of a creed or a prayer from the Bible, but on this particular Sunday, they were uh, going to recite a portion of Romans 8 that they had memorized. And the teacher started with the first kid, and he said, this was the youth pastor, and he said, George, what shall separate you from the love of God? And George looked out in front of the entire congregation, and he said, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. And George beamed the smile and the youth pastor was beaming and the whole congregation was beaming. And then he went to the next person, Mary. What shall separate you from the love of God? And Mary recited Romans 8. And as he went down the line, the congregation grew increasingly anxious because at the end of the line was Rachel. And everybody knew Rachel. They loved Rachel dearly. She was a a wonderful girl with a beautiful spirit. And she was a Down syndrome child. There's no way she could memorize Romans 8. But the question drew near until finally, Rachel, what shall separate you from the love of God? And Rachel looked out into this congregation or family of faith and she said but one word, nothing. That's what trust looks like. That's what trust looks like. To step out And it has two basic parts to it, two basic ingredients. For one, you have to believe in the goodness of the object of trust, of your trust. You have to believe in the goodness and the one that you are trusting. And in this case, it was her trust in the God of a congregation who loved her and accepted her no matter what. And then second, the second ingredient is what? Courage. Courage. She had to step out in front of everybody, knowing she wasn't going to recite the same lines that everybody else did, and to be okay with that and to say what she could say to profess her faith in God. So if you don't, and so it's courage that, that, require, that is like the, the, the oxygen that gives um, uh, fuel to the fire of faith. Without stepping out in trust, our faith will die. That's what Rachel did before that congregation. And it's the same way with Jesus. Do I believe like Jesus that God will take care of me? Jesus never had any fear because he knew he was in the hands of a loving God. So you can be uh, old, young, 
You can be intelligent or you can have uh, disability. You can um, be rich or you can be poor to trust God. In fact, uh, Jesus sort of warns those of us who are rich. And by the way, anyone who made over $25,000 last year is in the top 10%. So most of us are, are, would consider ourselves rich by global standards. Jesus warns saying that it's a little harder for the rich to trust in God because we get used to uh, trusting in ourselves and our own faculties, um, but the poor have to rely on God on a daily basis. It also doesn't matter what country you're from, what nationality, anyone can exert trust in God. I want to look at the, this uh, passage briefly, another passage that's part of Jesus' lengthiest set of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just a section of it. I first read it when I was 16 years old, and it's so simple and so obvious, it doesn't need a whole lot of commentary, um, so I just want to read this briefly because it is still to this day so profound in terms of its teaching of how we live our lives um, as Christians who seek to trust God. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you little faiths? That's the literal translation. I think he says that with like a twinkle in his eye. You little faiths. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For it's the unbelievers who run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his kind of goodness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and we all know this through life experience. Set your heart on his kingdom, his nearness, and his accessibility. And everything else will come as a matter of course. So Jesus is saying there is a God who is at the center of reality, constantly coming toward you in love. And this love is so extraordinary. We can put our minds and our hearts at rest by putting our lives in his hands. I'll close with this story. It was a time when my family and I were at Disneyland um, many years ago when the girls were little and Lucas was really, really little. We lived about 40 minutes from Disneyland and so we had season passes and we would often go on Monday afternoons for a few hours and stay for dinner and go home. Best day of the best time and day of the week to go to Disneyland if you don't want to fight crowds. Um, and one day we were, we were there and, um, and we had one of those 
double bob strollers, you know, they're, they're like the SUV of strollers and you can put like 45 kids on it and just pile them or two plus one on the edge and, and we were going around and I was taking a break sitting on the bench uh, in Toontown and Devin and the kids were up in a play structure and out of nowhere there was this little girl who was clearly lost like right in front of me and she was started to scream and cry, um, terrified. It, it was like fear became the emotion that she was most directly connected with in this moment, uh, running around and, and all of this. And out of nowhere, this kind of really big, tall man who worked for Disneyland, he had the uniform on and he came and he knelt down beside her and he said, hello, what is your name? And she said her name to him. And, uh, and he said, have you lost your mommy? And she said, yeah, 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 and she's crying. I don't know where my parents are, I'm lost, and da, 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 and, and he says, don't worry, I'm gonna be right here by your side. And then he uh, grabs his um, radio, and he radios into his people to go and find these parents. Asked them, asked her what she looked like, and she said, and he said, don't worry, they're on their way, they're gonna be here any minute. And then he started to engage her in conversation. What's your favorite ride? Small world. And she started to calm down. And after about, you know, seven or eight minutes um, of staying near to her, calming her fears with this warm smile, out of the distance comes running her mom and her dad with open arms and they hug and they embrace. And the Disneyland man stands up, tips his hat and walks away. I was so moved by this experience um, that I took a candid photo with my iPhone, because um, that's what preachers do out in public. <laughs> and I've kept it, I've kept it all these years. I knew this would preach one day. <laughs> and uh, I've kept it all these, all these years, because I think sometimes God is, is kind of like this. It's the presence of a strong, kind, compassionate, tender, God who is totally in control and who says to us, I don't care how lost you feel, you're not lost, I've got you. It's all, I've got it under control. You can, you can trust me. And this little girl trusted in this man. She could have run away. I don't know you, you're a stranger, get away from me. I better, I need to go find my parents and I'm out of here. But she chose to trust and it paid off. The question for us is where do we want to place our trust this week? Do we want to place it in ourselves, knowing our own human limitations? Do we want to place it in the stock market? We all know that's probably not a good solution. Do we want to give it over to the legislatures? Probably not. <laughs> or do you want to place your trust in the hands of a loving and non-anxious God to entrust him to entrust our lives into, our, into the hands of someone like that. What is the work that God requires of us? What are, we, what are we supposed to do, God? What is the work that you want us to do this week? To trust in the one whom he sent. God, we thank you for giving Jesus to the world. And we thank you that as he lived his life, he showed us the way he showed us what it meant to live a life of trust. And his way of life is so far from ours. We've, we, we, uh, we store up 
treasures in heaven and on earth as well. We've got portfolios and savings accounts and all these things. And while nothing, nothing is wrong with these, Lord, you ask us to ultimately place our trust in you, knowing that you are finally secure for all times and in all places, that you're always available to us in love. And when we want to experience love, we just need to turn to you. So open our hearts to your presence coming toward us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.